On this week's show, we're going to talk a little bit more beer history. As a matter of fact, we have Ron Pattinson coming on the show, and we're going to talk about his new book, AK, and I don't mean the gun, but the bitter. So stick around while we talk to Ron Pattinson about beer history and the AK. This week on Homebrewing DIY. Hey, fans of Homebrewing DIY, I want to talk to you about a tool that's sitting in your box of things that you're using to brew today. And that tool is your hydrometer. It's such a simple tool, probably came with your original kit, or you've broke a few and you've replaced them with five, six dollar cheap Chinese hydrometers. Well, the reason I want to talk to you about your hydrometer is that there's a better way. And that's Brewing America. Brewing America has amazing handmade in America brewing hydrometers. And the reason that I like them so much is that these are well-made handcrafted tools and they're easy to see and you know that they're calibrated properly. I, I actually dare you to take your Chinese hydrometer, go and throw it in some wort and actually give it a good calibration, and chances are that I would think it's off. So if you want to get a great tool to make better beer, go with a Brewing America hydrometer. So the best way to do so is head on over to homebrewingdiy.beer, click on the Brewing America link there. There's a banner right on the right, and you're going to get 15% off, and it also lets Brewing America know that we sent you. Welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this show covers it all. On this week's show, we're talking with Ron Pattinson, and we're going to talk to him about beer history, how you go about figuring out historical beers, and we're going to talk about his new book that he just released called AK. It's a cool book about a nice little bitter and I'm excited to read the book. I, I haven't read it yet, but it was a great conversation I had with Ron. And so please stick around and listen to the interview with Ron Pattinson. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's obviously because of you that we can keep the show coming to you week after week. I'd like to thank our two newest patrons. We have Kyle Smith and uh, Kyle, all right right here in denver colorado so thank you very much love a good local supporter we also have uh dell and dell passau and i hope i sold that said your last name correctly please uh correct me if i did say it incorrectly but thank you so much for your support i'll be sending out your stickers this week and look forward to interacting with you head on over to our discord server just if you go to the website hit the join the discussion i'll take you to our discord server and there you know chat with me ryan packmeyer 
Uh, Chino, he, he's not so much on there. He, you know, he's a Reddit guy. So if you're on Reddit, talk to Chino there as well. But yeah, we're we're definitely the homebrewing DIY crew. Is we, we definitely are active on the Discord server and love to chat with everyone. All right, and what's going on in my brewery? I, I actually brewed a really fun little beer the other day for a podcast that I'm going to be on. I, I went with the Pop Culture Brews guys, and it was a fun beer. We, we, we're going to be doing an episode where we discuss The Room, the movie The Room. Uh, I'm a fan favorite of such a bad movie. And we did a beer inspired by it. So I'm very, very excited about it. And we'll talk more next month when the beer is done. We'll talk more about what I did in my thought process. But it's definitely a funky little Saison that I made inspired by the movie The Room. So keep an eye out for that on the Pop Culture's Brew podcast, Pop, Pop Culture Brews podcast, and Kind of a cool thing is that when we release that show, I'll make sure to drop that episode in this feed as well. So you can check it out and uh, find out how we were inspired by that. So I'm pretty excited about it. Well, let's dive into this week's episode where we're going to talk with Ron Pattinson and we're going to discuss with him AK. But first, I'd like to discuss a brew shop that if you're looking to buy something online, you got to check out Keg Factory. Keg Factory is a sponsor of this show, and they've been a supporter of Homebrewing DIY. And because of their support, I've actually had a chance to do some shopping over there and have been blown away by the great customer service and the wide selection of different pieces of gear and equipment that they have. So if you need to buy anything, you're thinking about buying that next piece of equipment, go check out Keg Factory first. And here's a couple of reasons why. First thing, they have Keg Cash. So if you go and sign up and make an account, you're going to get $50 in Keg Cash just for making that account. And you can use that towards buying a new piece of gear. For every dollar that you spend, you're going to get Keg Cash back and you're going to be able to very quickly and easily be able to kind of apply that into the future. They also have home brewers that are everyday brewers on the staff. So if you have a question, you can call up Keg Factory, say, hey, homebrewing DIY sent you. I'd love to ask you this question. And they're going to answer it for you. They're, they're going to answer it for you with a smile. And they just have a great selection. So for example, if you want to just buy an all-in-one brewing system, like a mash and boil or a, a, a grandfather, you can do that there. And you could even go as far as getting a full Blickman system and just totally decking it out and they have it. And if you want to buy that Blickman system, you can get it all in easy payments for easy payments with no interest. So head on over to our website, go to kegfactory.com, click on the link. They'll take care of you. And when you, when you buy it, tell them that homebrewing DIY sent you. I'd like to welcome Ron Pattinson to the show. Ron is a very, very active beer historian. He operates the blog barclayperkins.blogspot.com and has been a well-known beer history writer. Welcome to the show, Ron. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Glad to be on here. Awesome. Always well, like to I... chat about beer history. 
Oh man, uh, it's one of my one of my my secret passions is uh, beer history, and uh, I I personally don't make a lot of historical beers, but I love to drink all of my friends' attempts at those, and so <laughs> and and a lot of those have been inspired by recipes that you found over the years, and I'd love to talk a bit about how you kind of got into beer history to maybe kick it off. It, could you maybe talk about how you what what made that spark and how did you start into it well i'd always been interested in in the history of history of british beers and um i've I've bought various books that other people had written and at a certain point i realized that there was a lot of contradictory stuff in them and that if i was going to find out the truth and and at the time what i was particularly interested in was porter was that the only way i was going to really find that out was to go and look at the brewing records which I mean, there's pretty good ones from the big London porter breweries in, in London. So then I had a chance to start looking through more than this, well, about a century and a half's worth of stuff. And yeah, I just found it fascinating. And initially I thought I was only really interested in the 19th century stuff. Uh, and then I found out, well, in fact, lots of really interesting things happened in the 20th century. So I, I started looking into that as well. So really now, I, I, whereas I originally thought, yeah, I was just going to look at the 1800s. I mean, I've now gone up to the 1970s and 1980s because um, I do have some records from that period. Yeah, and and kind of one of those, obviously, I, I think you, you've obviously loved British beers for a long time. What was it about those historical beers that kind of, perked your you know you know what 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 was it like was it something like the difference between them and the modern versions what what was it that yeah kind of well i was just that? interested it's, I, I mean I, I knew some basic things for example that british beer used to be much stronger than it is nowadays but i hadn't realized how different it was going to be so especially if you look at something like mild then a 19th century mild is nothing like a modern mild really um they're, they're completely different types of beer uh, I mean, one, one really interesting thing I did with Pretty Things is we brewed two versions of the same beer, Barclay Perkins X Ale, one from 1837 and one from 1945, and they had absolutely nothing in common with them, even though they're the exact same brand. Um, and that just tells you how much British beer changed over the years. Um, and not I, just once, would, several times. Yeah, and I, I'd love to know... It, it, would those changes have to be with availability of ingredients? Would those changes have to be with maybe social changes that were happening at the time? What, what do you think actually factored into those specific changes in the recipe? Well, um, some of it's to do with, with ingredients and some of it's to do with external factors like taxation. But some of it just seems to be completely random. Like, for example, mild going from a pale to a dark beer. I've still not come up with an explanation for why that really happened. I've got a couple of guesses, but nothing definite at all. Um, so there's some things which you can see, okay, yeah, this beer's got weaker because the tax has gone up or there have been some sort of restrictions. There's sometimes there's a, a direct relationship with it, but other changes just seem to be completely random. Yeah. Uh, could be just like they got a new head brewer and he decided that that's what it was, right? Yeah, well, it's odd when you see there's a, there's a sort of general trend. So this is what you see with, with, with mild going dark, that it does happen. It doesn't just happen at one brewery. It happens at lots of different breweries. Um, ah. So it's not like someone 
comes up with dark mild and everyone else does it. No, it seems to have been quite a long drawn out process. And at first it just gets a little bit dark. So it's not nothing like as dark as modern dark mild. It only really, in most of the country, it only gets as dark as that after World War II. Um, huh. Before that, it was either pale or sort of semi-dark. Wow, that, that that makes though it does make sense because if you look at it from a, and this is just conjecture, like I I'm just you know this is me thinking out loud. So please, uh, listeners, don't write me a scathing email about this. Uh, but example in a modern instance, right? Um, we'll use American beer as an example. You know, twenty ten years ago, an IPA was a very different thing than it is today, right? Uh, if you go into a brewery, it still says the word IPA, but it's pretty much, you know, gone from a, a brilliant, brilliantly cl- clear, crystal, super hoppy beer to now a hazy, orange, juicy thing, right? And so, and but the word IPA hasn't really changed locally here in the States, right? It's just that the, the, the tastes of the drinker have changed. Could that be? Well, they just call some... everything IPA nowadays in the states. Yeah, true, true, true. But... So, uh, IPA sells, so people call their beer IPA. To, oh, okay. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And so there's all sorts of different types of beer that have IPA stuck on them, um, even ones that aren't, aren't pale. So yeah, yeah, it's become fairly meaningless. Yeah, it has become fairly meaningless. But the point I'm trying to make is, do you think that maybe drinker preferences have also been some of the factors of what would change you know his historical beers from maybe going pale to dark or something like that yeah possibly i mean one of the one of the uh, the uh the possible explanations is that people generally used to uh think that a darker beer was stronger which in the case of things like ales which are 100 percent pale malt that's true you a, a, a beer like that of 10 percent will look noticeably darker than one of five or six percent so a darker colour is possibly associated with a stronger beer, and so that might be why people preferred it. But that's just a guess. No, that, that's a good guess. I mean, how many people have told me that Guinness is a heavy beer? And I'm like, Guinness has like 78 calories in it, right? So <laughs> it's like uh, it, it just the, the idea of a darker beer in general from a non-educated beer person might think that it's, you know, some way heavier more calories more alcohol right even though that's not really the truth in fact yeah and, and so the fact that it just started going dark also when glass drinking vessels became more common so ah. people were more aware of what the color was um, and, and another factor is that brewers generally towards the end of the 19th century got much more control over the color of their beers through the use of sugar so that whereas it might be a bit hit and miss if you were using malts once you start getting a lot of the colour from sugar, or adjusting the colour colour with sugar, then you can get all sorts of different shades in your beer quite easily, and basically get whatever shade you want. Um, yeah. So that might play a factor as well. And you see, see that after the 1883 Mashton Act, that there's a lot more sugar being used, and all this yeah. all these specialist sugars for specialist purposes. And so, yeah, that probably drove some of it as well. And that's and that's really a sort of uh, technical technical change in the in the ingredients that were available yeah well and you look at any kind of big change like that in beer history in general it's probably multiple factors that you then see the notable noticeable changes probably never just one exact thing right unless it's taxation yeah i mean sometimes it is quite clear but yeah a lot of the time it's not um yeah there's, there's all sorts of things that 
when I've looked into the causes of changes in beer, there's a lot of different factors, and a lot of them not necessarily part of the beer world. Um, so quite often the the, the, the the exterior world interferes with brewing um, for no particular fault of brewing. I mean, the World Wars are very, very good examples of that. Um, but a lot of the big changes in British beer have happened during wartime. So you see the big change in porter grists from 100% brown malt to a mixture of brown and pale malt. That happens during the Napoleonic Wars at the end of the 18th century, when malt becomes much more expensive. And so brewers become have got a very good reason to cut down the amount of brown malt and up the amount of pale malt, because they get a better yield from pale malt. Um, so that was basically war and taxation driving a change uh, yeah. a quite a substantial recipe change and then on the back of that then you have the invention of, of, of black malt um, which, which was so they could bump up the, the pale malt content of the beer even more yeah yet not change the color so that the the expectation from the drinker doesn't really change, right? Well, it it, it turns out that they did change the colour because I've I've found various sources from from a couple of decades into the nineteenth century where people are complaining about this horrible black stuff and and porter isn't the right colour anymore because they actually ah. made it because the, the the porters of the late eighteenth century were dark brown they weren't black and it's only ah. after you have black malt that it becomes a black beer. And yeah, not all the not all the drinkers were happy about that. Yeah, that that makes that that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, there's so many modern examples that I still uh, of those types of things, right? Uh, big change in the beer. Uh, uh, some some drinkers out there that are like, this isn't the way it used to be, and probably people that are really close to the style would notice things like that, right? Yeah, well, it would have uh, been it would have been quite a big difference. Yeah, huge um, difference. And, and a different flavor as well, because obviously yeah. black malt isn't flavorless either. So it's not just no. adding color. It's, it's add, adding lots of roast notes to the beer. And they w aren't the same if you have a beer that's just brown and pale malt or all brown malt. It's, a, it's not such the same sort of burnt flavor as you get with black malt. Yeah. And also the body would change uh, immensely as well. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, there's also, I mean, it's really interesting in the, in the sort of first decade, first half of the 19th century, it's quite a lot of different variations on um, porter and stout grists, yeah. and so you find various different combinations used, and then eventually most breweries uh, in most parts of the country settle down on just using pale and black malt, and don't use any brown or amber malt at all. Um, the exception being London, where where they always use brown malt. Well, I I. I would love to talk about, so we've been talking about mild a lot already, and I'd love to talk about your new book because your, your new book is, I, it's just come out. And so I have personally not had a chance to, to read it yet. I will, I'm actually about to order one quite quickly and uh, get it. Sh uh, you'll probably have to send it to me. And when I get it shipped over to me, I'm, I'm excited to read it. And, and that book's specifically about the AK. So why don't you tell me a bit about how you started on this new book and 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 kind of what you cover in this in this journey well it's it's about ak which for in the second half of the 19th century was probably one of the most common beer names in the uk and it was a new type of pale ale which wasn't a stock pale ale like the 
the Burton Pale Ales, but it was something that was meant to be drunk relatively young. It was fairly weak for 19th century British standards in that it would have been probably under between four and a half and five percent mostly. So pretty weak at a time when London Mild was between five and six percent alcohol. <coughs> Sorry. Um, so it's brewed all over all over England. <coughs> it was described as a light bitter. It was often marketed as a family ale, which is something to be drunk at home. <coughs> In the 19th century, that being a cask that people would buy, and it was seen as particularly suitable because it wasn't too strong. <coughs> because it wasn't too strong, and because it was ready to drink fairly quickly, and so it's something that people would drink at home with meals. That was that was the typical the way it was mostly marketed it seems, um, but th then for various reasons, um, mostly the two world wars because it was a relatively weak beer. When the strengths start getting cut, <clears throat> eventually in, at most breweries it got just too weak, and so people had never brew anything less than about two point seven percent alcohol in Britain, because it didn't make any tax sense because of the way the tax was done. And so basically, the, the, they just got forced out by beers which had been above them in the in the Palo hierarchy in a brewery. Uh, and so, by the time I was drinking, there were only two beers called AK that I knew about that were still being brewed. One of which was the standard bitter of the brewery in the town I grew up in, uh, Newark on Trent. So, I'd always been intrigued by AK just because of that. Um, and and uh, I'd, I always wanted to know what it, what exactly it had been. And then I've been lucky enough to find some actual brewing records. The first one being at Fuller's. <clears throat> so I think Fuller's 1910 uh, version of AK. So that, that that really pleased me when I could actually look and see what exactly what these beers had been. Um, yeah, so so quite interesting and really the sort of. There's sort of the same idea as many modern bitters, really, in that they're fairly light beers, um, not meant, you know, something that is meant to be easy drinking, that's not meant to be too bitter or too extreme in its flavour and not, not too strong, but just something that's a nice drinking beer. And that's what a lot of, of modern British bitters are. Yeah, and, and specifically AK style of those bitters, right? falls into at least at least my modern version of it that when if i were to walk into a pub today and, and see an ak would be in the the low to mid three percent alcohol is that right yeah something like that that would be about where they would have ended up now because yeah because they, they, they were only five percent at most at the start of world war one okay. um and and yeah, World War One, not beer strength down by I think about twenty-five to thirty percent, and World War Two, something similar. So yeah, the ones that survived World War Two were mostly a little bit over three percent ABV. Yeah, I, I uh, we have a local brewery here who actually does Cascale, and they have an AK on tap, and it ends up being around three point eight percent, which I've, you know, found is a is a little bit higher, but is a great beer. One of it's actually one of my favorites here. And uh, and that's why when you dropped the book, I was like, oh, hey, that's like one of my favorite beers at my local brewery. <laughs> so it's like I'd love to learn more about it. What, what do you think stylistically when you talk about ingredients? Uh, you know, what, what are the colors of, of, a, of a, you know, a, 
a modern versus a historical uh, AK? How did that change? Well, I mean, to, to, to ones from the mid-19th mid century were fairly simple peers. They'd just be all pale malt and probably mostly English hops. Then towards the end of the 19th century, then you'll have other ingredients. So then you'll most likely, almost certainly have some sugar in there and also something like flaked maize or maybe flaked rice because they, they wanted these beers to be light, light in body. So things like sugar and and adjuncts were quite useful for that. They didn't want something too, too thick and heavy. Um, then when you get into uh, the interwar period, then you might see some crystal malt appear in them. Um, but still nothing very complicated, really. And then, and then from there, the, the more modern versions are probably a little bit darker. So th they've probably got some, you know, some roasted malts in there. Would that be the big change to the more modern versions? No, I mean, I, I mean, the latest recipes I've got. Um, so I've got some Eldridge Pope. They, they had a beer called BAK, which is the bottling version of their AK. So they're light ale. And that has, uh, doesn't have any dark malts in it. And that, I think the latest ones from that I've got are 1980s. So pretty modern. Awesome. And, and let, let's talk about like, if I were, you know, we're a homebrewing show. And if I were a homebrewer and I wanted to take a stab at an AK, what, what, what would you think a, a, a good basic recipe as a, as a good starter would look like for me? Well, one thing I could say is that a good place to look would be in the in the book because it's got, uh, I think, about 30 re recipes from various periods. Um, yeah, really just uh, decent English malt, pale malt, and and some number two invert. And, yeah, Kent hops would be a fairly good, fairly good place to start, I think. Yeah, nothing, nothing really very complicated. Um, you know, you could maybe go up to a gravity of about 1050 if you wanted to do an, an older type version of the style. But, yeah, I mean, for a, a, a 19th century one, you'd be looking at something like 45 5%. Um, so a bit a good bit stronger than the, than the later version. But I've got all different strength ones. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've got some in there that are under 3%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how many recipes did you say were in the book? I think it's about. Hang on, I can have a look and, uh, rather than just try and remember. I think it's about thirty. Um, so uh, it's a reasonable number. It's. Uh, yeah. I mean, thirty versions of the same style of beer is uh, significant to me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, more than thirty. Thirty. Now probably more like about forty. And from quite nice. a few different breweries as well, and, yeah. and a good spread of time. So the uh, the last one is in 1984. Oh, so see, even a pretty modern version within the last 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd I'd love to know, kind of. I I love the fact that you have kind of taken a approach to beer that is obviously very historical i've also had peter simons on the show as well who i i think is very similar in the way that he gets brewing records and really you know hammers in on a specific style and writes a book about it right um 
I, I'd love to kind of know it, it, let's just say I'm, I'm super into finding out a historical beer. I know that I'm in the United States and our records probably are not as good as something you would have in, 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 in the UK or in Europe in general. Um, definitely has a lot more history with beer and it, it specifically at a, at a industrial level. What, what would you give advice to somebody who is maybe like I'm in Colorado and wants to, you know, get into the maybe local, more local historical beers in that area? What, what would you say is a good place to kind of start there? Well, the, the first place to start is to look in the local archives and see if they've got anything there. Um, I know it's not as good as in the UK, in the US, but I know when I have in the past, just out of interest, had, had, a, had a bit of a search on the internet, I've, I've found what seem to be brewing records in some archives. So th- there is some information out there, though I think in some cases, yeah, there might not be hardly anything at all. I mean, I have seen some, some American brewing records. Um, there's a reasonably good set of one of the Albany breweries. So from, I think, about eight, around 1900, they got, yeah, quite a few, few records there. Um, but that's for the Amstel Brewery. But, and so there are some things out there, but I think, yeah, you, you just have to be lucky. And, yeah. and also there's probably some stuff that, that are in private collections, so you might find stuff that comes up up for sale sometimes. Some, someone who's been a brewer somewhere has hung on to one of the brewing manuals. Um, so you might be lucky and actually find some one that was privately owned. But archives are the first place you should look. And you, you might yeah. be lucky, you might not. Yeah. Obviously, if you have a, a large industrial beer, brewery in the area, you could always reach out to them and see if they would let you have a look at their brewing records as well, right? Yeah, but, but, but surprisingly, um, people like Anheuser-Busch have got virtually nothing. I, I was really surprised when I found out. I thought they were the sort of company that would have hung on to that type of thing. But they don't have anything, I think, from uh, from uh, from before the Second World War, huh. which is a sh- which is a shame. Um, yeah. Just some very basic uh, in- lists of ingredients, but not proper records, not by any means. Um, so th- so that's quite disappointing. So so yeah, but it's always worth a try. You you never know. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because I bet Anheuser-Busch pre-World War II was completely different than, obviously, the modern versions you have today. Oh, yes. Right? Well, I mean, they, they know that even in the last few decades, it's changed. And they do yeah. it and they do it very slowly. So they'll, you know, just lop off one IBU every two, couple of years. Um, so it's not that noticeable when they first do it. But over a period of time, then you'll see that it's been drastically reduced. Um, and I think that's been that's a process that's been going on for a while. So I'm sure that the pre-war Budweiser would be much more bitter. Um, for, from what I remember, because I have seen some analyses of of uh, Budweiser, that it used to be higher gravity than it is now, and a little bit stronger. So I think it used to be over five percent. If you go back quite a long way. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's well, I and then you also have specific laws in specific states. So, like for example, I I grew up in 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 Utah, which was a three-two state, right? And Colorado was actually a three-two state for a long time. So they had a different version of Budweiser, and then 
other states did because they had a specific uh they had to be at four percent by volume or less right and so it, it only recently did budweiser stop making that specific beer and so there were actually a couple of versions in the united states just based on region yeah well from what i know about how budweiser's brewed i think it's brewed to eight percent and then diluted down so they probably yeah. just so, so i'm sure that the four percent one would have just been the same same beer just with more water added to it would totally make sense to me <laughs> so i don't know maybe they tweaked it so it, it, it you didn't notice it was that much weaker but yeah it wouldn't surprise me if that's how it was made well if you're going from 4.8 percent to 4.0 percent for example it would probably be very very negligible to notice anyway right yeah you would you would think but, but you'd never know but they're not the only people to brew different versions of the same beer um i've been looking at some heineken records and in the 1950s they got the version of heineken that they sold in 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 holland which was a five percent beer and then you got the special version that they brewed for the uk which was 3.2 ah yeah i've actually i've seen you uh talking about this on twitter recently right this is uh you've been looking at a lot of heineken records lately right yeah, well, because because the great thing is the Amsterdam the Amsterdam Town Archive has quite a few Heineken brewing books in it, and they have this great service. You can request five documents a, a month be digitised. So I just got them to digitise the, the the years of Heineken brewing records I was interested in. Uh, so it's brilliant. You've got access to every single one. When I photograph brewing records, I never photograph every page. I don't have time. So I always yeah. only have a selection. So it's brilliant having access to a completely full set. Uh, yeah, they've got some... I'd, I'd love to know, like, what are, what's in a full like what's in a full set of a brewing document, right? Uh, I, I've I've had this conversation with a few people where they're like, oh yeah, I went and looked at the archives, I saw their brewing document. But what's actually contained in those documents? Is it just like a brew log, or is it the recipe? What, what what's in there? It it depends. It depends on the brewery and it depends on the country. Um, the Heineken records they list the ingredients and the strength and the color but they don't have anything about the brewing process. Whereas a British brewing record, that would have details of the mash, give you the length of the boil, uh, all stuff like that. So it'd tell you a lot more about the, about the actual brewing process. I mean, if you're lucky, it might have a complete fermentation record as well. So, you know, the, the, the temperature and the uh, gravity of the warp every six or eight hours through the fermentation process. So then you can see the exact uh, fermentation profile, but the, the Heineken ones are much more limited than that. Um, yeah, it it, ju it does vary a lot at what what's recorded in them. Some ones are much better than others. A lot of British brewing records don't include the dry hop details. It's quite wet, rare to record that in the brewing record for some reason, which is quite annoying because it's difficult to know exactly what people were up to. Um, yeah. That, that's what that's one of the good things about the Barclay Perkins records. They do they do give the dry hop details and they list the the primings as well, which is another tricky one because it was quite common for people to add 
uh, a sugar solution at racking time to promote a quick fermentation in the in the cask so it'd be ready to serve really quickly uh, but most breweries don't bother recording that uh, so you can really only guess at it because yeah, not and, everyone and did because not yeah, everyone, not everyone did, it. did it yeah, yeah. not everyone did it and if they did do it it was just like oh this is just how we do it and it's the same for everyone we don't write it down right yeah I mean for, for the Barclay Perkins beers for some of them it significantly boosts the gravity of the beer because some of them they're putting like into a 36 gallon barrel they might be putting in a gallon of primings and this is oh. prime and so this is primings at a, a, a gravity of i don't know 1140 1150 so you stick a gallon of that in so in some cases it's it's boosting the the og by like three or four points so a fair bit and yeah. again, if if the, if, the, if the brewery doesn't record that, then you're getting a, the wrong idea about the strength of the beer. Well, that and also that affects directly the because you're priming it in the cask as well. That also kind of affects how how much carbonation there is, right? In in, in that scale. yeah, and and it's also that the the primings they weren't just necessarily just a straight sugar solution. Sometimes they've yeah. they, they got caramel in them because they'd be wanting to colour the beer at the same time. So uh. it, it's quite a complex topic, primings. And I never know really what to do with it because unless people are cast conditioning the beer, then you actually replicating exactly what it does is quite difficult. Yeah, that that well, that's a huge variable in my mind because that's... Uh obviously packaging has such a effect on flavor anyway right um and and that entire process makes it so that it's not just the carbonation it you, as you just said you've got color you've got gravity it affects the overall mouthfeel and everything right there there's a lot of factors there yeah it's, it's a really complex topic and and, and... As with all the other sugars, there were loads of specialist types of primings. So one's designed for specific types of beer, because you, you'd want to get specific characteristics. So with a mild, you might want primings that are going to leave a fair bit of residual sweetness, because people often expected a good bit of sweetness in a beer like that. Whereas for a bitter, you wouldn't necessarily want that. You'd probably want it to be something that would leave the beer drier rather than sweet. So, yeah, there were all sorts of different specialized products. It was a, the whole brewing sugar industry was massive. There were lots of different manufacturers. You look at the old brewing magazines, they're always full of adverts for all these different types of sugar. Wow. And, and, and these brewing sugars were not just maltose-based sugars, right? These were things like cane sugar, beet sugar. Yeah, this is cane sugar. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the commonest types being invert sugar so a combination of um fructose and dex fructose and um uh, glucose okay yeah and um, these are sugars that are going to ferment out completely anyway right these aren't the these are very simple sugars versus the more complex sugars yeah but i mean it depends how quickly you're going to sell the beer um yeah. you know it's, it's just generally something like mild the normal way with that would be you just sell it as soon as it came into condition so as soon as it was carbonated enough and was clear then you'd yep. then you'd start selling it so that might be very quickly within a couple of days of getting in the pub uh basically as soon as it dro dropped bright 
Yeah, but whereas you had something that was a stout, that would probably be a completely different process because you're looking at a beer that's that's going to have some more age to it, right? Yeah, or a, or a, or a bitter as well. You, you, yeah. You'd be wanting to achieve something different. So. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's another, awesome. another one of these processes that's, yeah, but mostly forgotten about. That's, that's so. Every time I start having these conversations about beer history, it's just you you don't think of all of the little factors that have changed so much, right? Especially with like brewery automation the way it is today and 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 it's just so it, it, the the entire brewing process, even though yes, it it's still you mash, you boil, you uh you 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 add hops and yeast like that 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 is still the, the process that way at a high level is still the same. But when you get into the actual details of how people had to do things with different levels of technology, it, it, it in some ways becomes a very, very completely different beer because of the necessities at the time, right? Yeah, and also because people did things differently. I, I mean, one yeah. of the things that surprised me, um, what I'd always been told was that after sparging was adopted, that British breweries just did a single infusion and then maybe one or two sparges. And that was how they mashed. But when I looked at brewing records, I found that no, that's not the way they mashed. And that multiple mashes were going right on through the 19th century at some breweries. I think Barclay Perkins were even sometimes doing multiple mashes in the 20th century. So between the wars, they still have a couple of mashes. Um, but one of the really common ways of, of mashing was underlet mashing, which is a sort of step mash where you do an initial infusion. And then after, I don't know, half an hour to an hour, then you add some more hot, hotter water from underneath and raise the temperature of the mash by four or five degrees Fahrenheit. And then you leave it for a couple of hours. And after that, you sparge. And that method seems to have been incredibly common. I keep finding it at breweries. Um, even I've found Scottish breweries that did it, whereas they're sort of like the, the home of the single infusion, but it, there were even breweries there who did underlet mashing. So it's huh. quite interesting. And again, it's something that's mostly forgotten about. Um, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if Harvey still did it. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, as, as we as we talk, I've, I've never heard at least in, you know in the homebrew world you've never you'll never hear out there uh hey step mash a uh a, a british style beer right that's just not what what you see in any recipe today yeah but it, it was it was a very very popular method um really right through from the 19th century right through post-war it was just a, a way that a lot of breweries made their beer um yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it's one of these other things that, that surprised me. That was when I, when you look at things in detail, you say, well, they're not necessarily what people have been telling you. Yeah, well, and I, I feel like that's just the story of beer in general, right? It's a lot of uh, there's there, there's a little there's a little voodoo in there where it's like you know we we just have a lot of stories that are kind of passed down, and a lot of them are wrong and dogmas, right? And once you actually really get into there, there's the the people that go and do scientific processes to prove maybe this is this specific thing is a myth and then you have the other ways where people talk about history in a way where they kind of romanticize it and have these stories that when you actually get down and look at the brewing records none of it's really true it's just generalizations right yeah no and this is a good thing that, that, that because there's such good records 
you can actually look and see what happened and how people brewed. And, and one of the good things about the British brewing records is that they are legal documents. These are things which they had to fill in for the tax people. So you can be reasonably sure that they're right because they could get into an awful lot of trouble if they weren't. Um, the, the way the system used to work for taxation used to work in Britain excise men used to have access to breweries and they would go in and, and check up stuff and see that the brewing book was right and see that the amount of water you produced was actually what was in the book um, so they were kept they were, a pretty close eye was kept on brewers so, which is good for us so it means that you can probably trust these because these are genuine production documents where there were there were good reasons why they, they should fill them in properly, because there were consequences if they didn't. Um, and that, that's one of the good things about the tax system. So you see that in other countries, I assume that the, the brewing records don't have quite the same status. Uh, I don't think the, the ones from Heineken do. It's not the impression I get from them. Well, it would make sense if their taxes aren't directly linked to them, right? Uh, well, it does actually give the, the amount of tax that they, that they paid. So that's one oh. of the columns, is, is the tax, so which was based on the, the strengths and the, and the number of hectolitres. Um, well, one of the interesting things about the Heineken pills is, in the, in, the, in the 1930s brewing records, it's always 4.7% ABV. It's always what it comes <laughs> out as, even though on the label it says 5%. <laughs> they just rounded up. Well, I guess, it's, I guess it was the, the, the maximum margin of error that they were exploiting. Yeah, exactly. It's Breweries just, do uh, this today as well, believe me. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, you know, it, it's as much art as it is science, is the way I always put it. <laughs> yeah. No, if you, if, you look at, if you look at modern beers, because uh, yeah. I've seen some from beers from the last sort of 10 or 15 years, you'll find that the big commercial brands are consistently under the ABV that it says on the label, and that from smaller breweries, they're often stronger than it says on the label. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just kind of... Uh, well, you know, it, the the labels get printed before the beer is made, is the way I put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but if if you're a big industrial brewery, you could you, you can you uh, totally dial it. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the what you say about the labels being printed before the beer was brewed, that's been the case. I, I've done collaborations with breweries in the states, and because of all the weird rules with the way you have to get label approval you have to apply for it before the beer's been brewed when the brewer yep. doesn't know how exactly how strong it's going to be and i know a few of the beers i've been involved in were miles different in their strength from the one on the label um because it was a beer the brewer had never made before they weren't quite sure what was going to happen and uh, yeah it was virtually never right yeah that makes complete sense well, Ron, I want to thank you for coming on Homebrewing DIY, and I'd love to just a, a shout out quickly. Um, if I wanted to read more about your blog and really kind of follow your journey through this, uh, what's the address to your, your blog? Well, it's called Shut Up About Barclay Perkins, so if you just remember that and search for that, you'll find it. Excellent. And uh, then, I've, uh, I've, got, I've, got, I've got many books that, which are available yeah and and can you buy those books on that site or is there another yes there's, 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 there's links from my blog to, to yeah multiple books about brewery history so uh i've got one on world war one uh one on post-war britain so 
from 1945 to 1965. Uh, one on Lager, British Lager, all sorts of things. Uh, and my new book on AK, which yep. is one of my smaller ones. Yeah, well, I, I will be ordering that book very soon. So uh, when, when you see it come through and it's coming to Colorado, it'll be me. And uh, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. If you're listening to this, obviously, I will put links to his blog and to the, the new AK book that just just came out uh, so that you can check that out if you if you're interested. I am definitely interested and I, I'm definitely really looking forward to the read. And uh, thanks for coming on Homebrewing DIY. Okay, no problem. Um, I hope you enjoy the book. I'd like to thank Ron for taking the time to come on this week's show. It was a, a really great conversation. And of course, Ron is just a wealth of knowledge. I, specifically on beer history, I just it's one of those things where I don't, I don't think anybody knows as much as this guy right now. But yeah, great show. Well, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Look for us all one word at Homebrewing DIY. And that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY. <laughs>